I was a good driver, but I, I don't think I was the most talented driver. I think I was pretty persistent and when I was getting into that flow, the car and myself at the same thing, kind of a meditate state, outer state of mind, I could be very fast. Welcome once again to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. My guest this week is a driver I haven't spoken to for ages. Since retiring from Formula One at the end of 2000, he's gone quite literally off the grid, living on his farm in Brazil. So it's been a real treat to get back in touch with him. In total, he raced in Formula One for six seasons and he was faster than his record would have you believe. He scored a total of 10 world championship points at a time when they were only given out to sixth place. And he stacked up well against some very highly rated teammates like Damon Hill and John Alesi. The man I'm talking about is, of course, Pedro Diniz. Pedro is now one of the biggest producers of organic grain and eggs in Latin America. We hear all about that in this episode, but we also talk about a man who could be very quick behind the wheel of an F1 car. How does he reflect on his career now and what would he do differently if he could do it all again? We talk about it all, including some of those moments when he became a tabloid headline writer's dream. Do you remember Dinner's in the Oven? That was one of many great headlines after his fiery accident in the 1996 Argentine Grand Prix. It took me a while to track Pedro down and it was very much worth it. We caught up just before the Brazilian Grand Prix and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Pedro, it is so lovely to see you again. It's got to be more than 20 years since I last saw you. How are you? I'm great. I'm saying that the F1 times is my other life <laughs> because I completely changed my life right now. I lived in the farm for seven years from 2010 to 2017. Uh, now I'm back to the kids growing older and uh, I'm back to Sao Paulo, but I still spend a lot of time in the farm. I'm in the farm now and I get in love to, to this. I'm getting, uh, getting in love with nature and uh, producing food, regenerating nature really became my passion. And there is some similarities of, uh, of uh, driving a car actually. <laughs> Well, look, Pedro, you're talking about Fazenda de Toca, and I do want to talk about that later. But can we start by talking about Formula One? Formula One, you have to tell me because I don't know much about Formula One anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I think of you most days, Pedro, because I've got a photo on my wall of when you chucked me into a lake <laughs> near Avignon before the start of the 1998 Formula One season. You were having a training camp and uh, I was on the back of your jet ski and you threw me off. <laughs> and I've got a photo of that Great. on my office wall and uh, you're crying with laughter in it. So, so you're ever present in my life. <laughs> hey, Pedro, how much do you keep in touch with Formula One then? Life on the farm, yes, but... But, you know, do you watch the races still? Some races, not all of them. I think I, I would love, love the, to drive and I love the speed and love the, really the excitement of uh, driving a, a race car. But really watching it is not really my, my thing right now. 
What do you miss about racing? What I miss really, it's, uh, it's the excitement of uh, driving the car, the, the excitement of uh, being on the edge with a racing car. Uh, and that really I missed. And uh, I replaced with other sports, of course, nothing as radical as Formula One, but uh, I surf and I kite surf right, uh, right now and I'm getting uh, pretty good on that. And uh, and it's not really the same as uh, driving a Formula One car, but it replaced a little bit, especially at the beginning when I stopped, uh, replaced a little bit of the adrenaline. But what, what I really missed is, uh, is the adrenaline of a uh, driver racing car, really. And what about your career as a whole? It was, what is it, 98 races, six seasons. How much did you enjoy that time? I used to say that Formula One was my other life because <laughs> I completely changed my life when I stopped racing. But it uh, was a fantastic other life. I really enjoyed it. Uh, at the end, I was a little tired of a lot of traveling and uh, a lot of uh, uh, relationships. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, not very open person. Uh, I, I can show that I'm a little bit open, but a little, sometimes I'm a bit shy uh, and uh, have all the exposure that I used to have uh, when I was in Formula One. I was not very comfortable with that. And so, that was a little bit challenging for my for me, uh, but uh, I miss I miss everybody and uh, all the traveling and uh, all the excitement of uh, being the races. I miss that. You raced for four teams: Forty, Ligier, Arrows, and Sauber. Yeah. Where were you happiest, and why? I think all, all, all of the the teams that I I raced uh, was uh, nice times. I mean, the first. First, first team 40 Corsi that I, that I drove was more like a Formula 3000 car than more a Formula 3000 car than a Formula 1. But it was, I mean, the passion behind the team and uh, Guido Forti and uh, all the team, the passion that they have uh, of uh, building that racing car, that was so nice. And uh, on Ligier, I mean, it was nice time too. And uh, on Aeros, uh, my time that I uh, teammate with uh, Damon Hill that was fantastic. Uh, all, all, all of my experiences in Formula 1 has uh, some very nice highlights and I miss all of them. When you're talking about 40, even Roberto Moreno, who was your teammate that year, he was, you know, the king of driving for back of the grid teams. Even he said that was an awful car. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was, so it was quite tough for you to shine in your first season. Yeah, it was... was was a tough guy. Prior to that year with 40, what had you done? It had been a couple of seasons in British Formula 3, a couple of seasons in F3000. But did you feel ready for F1 that year? I was very young, 25 years old. When you're very young, you don't think much. But probably I, I was not ready. <laughs> and it was tough. It was a tough car. I, I never drove... In Monaco before, I, I didn't drove Formula 3 in, in, in Monaco. So when I when I sit on that Formula 1 car for the first time on that track and uh, with all the camber on the on the track of Monaco and uh, with that car, I mean, wow, they cannot drive this thing here. <laughs> and, uh, and that was crazy. 
but at the end, everything worked. Pedro, how funny to hear you talking about Monaco like that, because actually, later on, you were really good in Monaco. You had some, some of your best results there. Yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, Monaco is a, a crazy track, but uh, it's something that I, when I mentioned that uh, the similarity to what I do now to to what what I was doing back racing is that uh, in Monaco, when you, you really had to be on the flow to drive on that track, I mean, it's nothing that you can think about driving that. You have to be on that flow. When I stopped, stopped racing, uh, I went really deeply into yoga and uh, meditation. And uh, it's a shame that I didn't have that before because uh, the experience that I have in meditation I, I did some very advanced practice of meditation uh, that I still do now. And the feeling that I have on meditation when I really go in deep into that is the similar uh, that I, when I, I was driving on F1 car. And, and to drive in Monaco, you really have to go in a kind of uh, alternate state of energy driving that car to, to really drive on that, on that track. And it's, uh, it's, it's very similar to, to meditate. How do you think yoga and meditation would have helped you as a racing driver? Many ways. I, I started to do yoga like 2003. I think I stopped racing in 2000. And I really love it. And I, I got in really deep into that. And all the controlling the stress and uh, uh, the respiration and uh, breathing and uh, uh, all this is it's amazing really to control the stress I think that it would help me a lot but then lately I think 2005-06 I did uh, this retreat on meditation and that was a very stream retreat that was 10 days in silence and 10 hours of meditation per day and that was very stream and it was very very difficult for me very difficult but I think if I had that, that these techniques when I was driving would be fantastic for me because really to control the mind, to control the stress and lead to mentalizing too would be fantastic, I think. I, I think some of the drivers use these techniques right now. Not 10 days of silence, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> 10 days of silence with 10 hours of meditation per day. Can you imagine that? No, not really. No, no telephones. <laughs> but I'd love that. No, I would love that. Pedro, when I think of your career, there's lots of highs, some lows, obviously, but there's three particular incidents I wanted to ask you about. First up, Argentina, 1996. You're driving for Ligier. It is your second season in Formula One. An oil pipe cracks mid-race and your car erupts into flames. Out goes the... And my goodness, that is... That... That... It, I can't see whether it's a Ligier or whether a 40. They both they both have the same sponsor, basically. Oh, it's a Ligier, and it's Pedro Diniz. Pedro Diniz, his car burst into flames. The engine blows. That's the Mugen Honda engine. Erupts behind him, and that colossal sheet of flame... Goodness, Pedro Diniz was jolly lucky to get out of that. The British tabloids had fun with it. Diniz in the oven. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, but yeah. Talk us through your memories of that incident and just how horrible it was, because it was a, a real fireball, wasn't it? Yeah, well, that was really 
I think that is, I had some very good incidents, uh, uh, as you can remember, <laughs> uh, accidents, uh, actually. Uh, and that one, I think, was the most scary one because I thought I would, I would die there because the whole car was on fire. I was in the middle of the fire and was very crazy because what passed on my mind is that uh, I'm so sure that I'm, I was not dying from a Formula One car. How, how come I'm dying right now? <laughs> and that what passed through my mind when I was in that fireball. And that was really crazy. And I still don't know how I got up, get, get out of the car without taking the steering wheel because the, actually the steering wheel didn't come up and I went out and I, I tried many times afterwards to, to get out of the car without taking out the steering wheel. I, I couldn't. But that day, <laughs> I, I did it. I, I don't know how, but I, I, I get out of the car without taking out the steering wheel. You know, hearing you describe that, very much reminds me of Roman Grosjean in Bahrain last year. I don't know if you saw his fiery accident, yeah. but he talks about how he got out of that car and through the halo, lost a shoe actually on the way out. But so that was a very scary moment for you. Did it did it change your approach to Formula One in any in any way? No, yeah, don't think so. Again, uh, when you are very young, you don't think much about these things. <laughs> You just jump in the car and go again. Uh, I remember, uh, you, you remember that race that everybody crashed in Spa-Francorchamps on the start? Uh, I, I think... Yeah, 1998. Yeah. Um, like one third of the grid uh, crashed on the start. And uh, after the race, I saw that a wheel almost hit my head. And But I I was just run off after that, the, the spare car was mine and I jumped in the car and went again. <laughs> and I, I just saw it after, after the race that I almost died. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's crazy. Don't think much about it. Yeah. Well, look, while we're talking crashes, you say Argentina 96 was the scariest. But from an outsider looking in, I think it's Nürburgring 1999 when you made contact with Alex Wurtz. Yeah. Your Sauber is flipped upside down. And I think the roll hoop broke. Yeah, yeah. So we were watching and the car looked flat upside down. And I was very distressed watching that. How you got out of that? I think, I think I mean, that what, was very, very... You must have felt very trapped. I think that was very scary for everybody who was watching. And, but for me, it was so fast, that thing. I think uh, after we measured, I think I was more than 200 kilometers an hour when I fly over actually it was someone hit my heel wheel and the car fly over and and landed on on the roof and the roof broke i was so fast that i didn't have time to to really to to be scared i was trapped under the car but i didn't see any fire or anything so i was very lucky <laughs> that was very very lucky uh and my my fa my father almost died on that on that accident because <laughs> he's, he thought he thought I was uh, I died actually. Now that's that's your father Abilio. Um, tell me about your relationship with him because recently we had Lawrence Stroll on the podcast, the uh, the owner of the Aston Martin team, and of course his son Lance is racing, and he describes their sort of racing passion as a journey that they do together. Is that what it was like for you and and your dad? Yeah, yeah. My father loved loved racing and. Uh, he used to be a racing driver when he was young. 
uh, here in Brazil. And so we're pretty close in, in during my racing times, but uh, he was not there every race or anything. So I think it was a little bit different, but I think, uh, I mean, it's, it's similar, but it's, it's actually also tough because uh, my father is a very successful guy businessman and all the sports and everything so I, I want to to show him that I was uh, good on it so apart from the pressure from myself there also a pressure for the kid that wants to show the father that he was good well in this incredible race one of the most amazing things to me is that Pedro Diniz who started in the arrows one place ahead of Damon Hill on the grid has stayed ahead of the world champion Diniz is in third position Let's talk about some of your best performances in Formula One now. And I want to look into 1997. You've moved to Arrows. You've got the reigning world champion Damon Hill as your teammate. And I think Spa that year was your best race in Formula One. You outqualify Damon and David Coulthard, for that matter, in the McLaren. You're only two tenths of a second behind Heinz Harold Frentzen's all-conquering Williams. You run third in the race until I think some confusion at the pit stop ruined it for you. But I would say that's your best race. What What do you think? Yeah, I'm getting thickly. I remember that race. Uh, yeah, that was probably one of the best races. I, I I love Spa. Spa was a, one of the tracks that I used to love. Yeah, was was frustrating. Uh, if I remember well, it's a long time ago, but if I remember well, I think there's something wrong on the pit stop. But uh, there would be probably a podium, maybe. I don't know. It's not supposed to be. I remember Damon not being that happy <laughs> <laughs> that weekend. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, I think you went very well at fast tracks as well, because you were, you were good at Suzuka as well. You outqualified Damon at Suzuka that year as well. Yeah, I used to love fast tracks, maybe a little bit too crazy. Uh, <laughs> for me, I feel that the adrenaline and, and the flow on fast tracks for me was, it's, um, it's something that really flows, that you get really together with the, with the car in a kind of meditated state than on fast tracks that happens. But also in Monaco, Monaco, it, it, it's, a, it's a slow track but it has some very fast corners. So it's similar in, in some, somehow, like the swimming pool in Monaco is very fast. I miss that. Uh, talking, talking with you, uh, make, make me remember. It's all coming back, I Coming hope. back, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, what about Monaco 96? You're in the Ligier. You say the previous year was your first ever run at the track, yet you only qualify... 0.3 of a second behind your teammate Olivier Panis, he goes on to win the race. I think you had to retire with a with a gearbox issue yeah. or something. But you know, that's a case of what might have been there as well. Yeah. That was a good car. Did you feel very hooked up in Monaco that weekend? This what I what I mentioned. I think the biggest challenge for me, probably when I was racing, was my myself. Because when I was getting really close to, to results and getting really close to really have very good results, uh, I think uh, uh, my mind has uh, played some tricks on me and with stress. And uh, you remember 
in A1 ring that I did uh, the fastest time uh, on the pre-qualifying uh, on Friday. And then I was so excited and very stressed uh, Saturday and uh, I did a very badly, quali very bad qualifying. So uh, I think the biggest challenge for me was really myself. I think I could do much, much better if I really has a little bit less stress on myself. And I, and when I was stressed, I couldn't really go on that flow with the car. And I think it was, that was my biggest challenge. Of course, all the mechanical and the car and everything, all this, but I think, uh, probably if you ask me what was the biggest challenge on Formula One for me to have better results was really, uh, the challenge of my mind. <laughs> And does it go back to what we were discussing earlier about were you ready for Formula One? Because you didn't start karting until you were 17, 18. Yeah. You know, nowadays they start at four. Had you started 10, 15 years earlier, do you think you, that would have helped prepare the mind? Probably. Yeah, probably I would have a stronger mind. Because for me, it was very difficult. I mean, going like before qualifying, I was really very nervous and uh, very difficult for me to, to get in the flow. Why were you so nervous before quali? What was playing on your mind? Why were you getting uptight? That's a good question, but I think it's pressure. Myself putting pressure on me, the outside pressure, the pressure of really showing that I'm good, uh, all this pressure. And this really doesn't put you on, on a state of performing the best of yourself. And that was probably, I think it was the biggest challenge for me, really. Did you learn things in this department from teammates like Damon Hill? Did you watch how he went about the business of being a racing driver and, and did that help you? Yeah, a lot. I, I learned a lot with Damon. He didn't have a very good year because he was very frustrated, as you can imagine. But uh, I learned a lot with Damon. I have very good teammates. Uh, I learned a lot with, uh, and I love Jean. Jean Alesi was fantastic the two years I spent with him. And, and, and it was really, really great. And Damon was also a very, very good teammate. And uh, really, we, we worked very well together. What were Damon's greatest strengths? I think Damon, he, he's really deal very well with pressure probably this one of his greatest strength really he didn't well at least he didn't show but he didn't alter it at all with all the pressure i think this one of this his biggest strength really if we talk about your teammates in chronological order there was mika salo wasn't there yeah. he was your teammate in year two at arrows but then again at sauber in 2000 yeah. And I think Mika was involved in chucking me in that lake, by the way, in Avignon. But um, <laughs> but uh, what about Mika? How quick was he? Well, no, Mika is very, very talented and very fast. Uh, was not so easy to, very, very frankly, uh, uh, I like Mika and he's a great guy, but it was not so easy to work with him. We didn't really co-create much the... <laughs> the the setup of the cars uh, was much easier like with Jean or Damon uh, to really work and uh, and to work together and to, to improve the cars is that because you and Mika were just so competitive with each other you couldn't share any information at all exactly <laughs> two young guys and I mean it, it's impossible to put 
two pieces in the same space, so trying to have the same space. <laughs> what about that car um, in 1998, the Arrows A19, designed by the design genius, really, John Barnard? How good was the car? The car was okay. The engine was a disaster, if I remember. And... You had a lot of retirements. Yeah, but the engine was very, very difficult to drive. There was no torque and it's, uh, it's very, very difficult engine to drive. Uh, the Yamaha, no? And so it's pretty tricky car to drive. And uh, I don't have very good memories of that car, really. <laughs> well, look, let's fast forward to 1999. I remember you being linked to various teams. I think BAR... Honda, who were, were entering Formula One in 99. Yeah. You were being linked to them. I think you were being linked to Benetton as well. You end up at Sauber, of course, but how close did you come to BAR or, or Benetton or, or anything else for that matter? Yeah, we had a lot of negotiations, uh, but um, everything in Formula One, as you know much better than me, that it's very, there is a lot of. Uh, Things that has to be aligned to you to, to jump in, in the car. So, but uh, I think Sauber was, was a very good choice and uh, was a great team, team. I think being pretty close to Benetton, but uh, I think Sauber was a good choice. And what about BAR? Because Ricardo Zonta, another Brazilian, yeah. uh, got the drive in the end, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. The negotiations there, I don't remember really that much, but uh, I think it didn't really get much closer to that. To that negotiations but uh, uh i think benetton we bring close and we, we spoke with flavio a lot and at the end we we ended up on sauber so why sauber pedro you say it was a great team for you why did it work so well well it's was easy to to work on sauber and pretty good car good atmosphere on the team Peter Sauber is a good guy to work with. And I think it was great atmosphere in the team, really. I think that was really the why I have good good memories from that time. Well, and you outscored Jean Alessi that year, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. Jean, he was the very, very good teammate. Was We had so much fun together. Go on, g give me some examples <laughs> of what you got up to with Jean Alessi, Pedro Diniz. Had he bought his, his vineyard near Avignon at that time? Yeah, I think I think I think it was already living in Avignon, but uh, I think about that later. But Jean, he's a very nice guy. It's very easy going to to work with Jean, and I mean he had so much experience, so we don't compete so much. Like that was a challenge with with Mika because we we compete a lot in, inside of the team, and with Jean there was not competition at all. We discuss everything, and we we really work together and he was really a guy that doesn't need to compete with myself and so it was so easy to work with him and Jim was he's he's really really talented guy and amazing the way he drives very good memories was the relationship with Alessi so good that actually he was pleased for you when you got a good result yeah I think so uh Jean is the kind of guy that uh he was very happy when I was having good results, and, and and it's funny because when he was having good results, I was I was very happy too. So we really like uh, working like a team and working like uh, to 
friends that are working together and uh, really helping each other and uh, very happy that uh, one helping each other. You seemed very hooked up that summer because you got let's let's not forget that points only went down to sixth place back then and and you were in the points at Silverstone and Austria consecutive races. You seemed it was a, a purple patch for Pedro Diniz. Yeah. I think it was because of the last car. I, I used to really like that car. And and the whole atmosphere in the team and uh, everything was uh, was really nice. Do you think 99 was your, your best season, just from a personal performance point of view? I think so. I think so. I, I was more mature. I think, I think it was the, probably the best season. And then you stay at Sauber for 2000, yeah. and it wasn't such a good year, was it? And, it? and it didn't get off to a great start either. Yeah. When at your home Grand Prix into Lagos, yeah. they have to withdraw the cars for safety reasons. And Were you starting to fall out of love with Formula One at that point? Yeah, I was a little bit tired. And to be very open, I was having like... A, some fear actually, fear of hurting myself. And that was very bad in, in the mind of a racing driver, uh, fear. And that was the first time really. And that was really bad to, 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 to fear a little bit and fear, fear to hurt myself. And I think that was because I was getting a little bit tired of that. Really. Where did that fear come from? What triggered it? What was the catalyst? Because of the accidents, really, I have really bad accidents and um, I was having this uh, these thoughts of fear in my mind and that was really bad I, I was trying to don't think about it and, but uh, when I finished racing when I decided to stop then uh, it came to my mind really it was the right time so did you even look for options in 2001 or was that it you always knew you were going to hang up your helmet yeah I looked but not really much. It was a kind of, um, for me, it was a, a kind of a relief to stop racing and uh, because I was not really feeling 100% there anymore. So uh, when I decided to, that's it, then uh, there was a, a decision that uh, there was a kind of a relief for me. One of the last times you drove a Formula One car, I think, was probably Mugello, late 2000s when a, a young whippersnapper called Kimi Raikkonen <laughs> made his F1 debut as well. Do you remember? Yeah. You, you were sharing the car. Yeah. And of course, it's crazy to think that Kimi's still going. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what are your memories of Kimi those couple of days back in Mugello? Well, very young, very fast. Funny because when I was driving from a tree, I did a, like from a tree in Brazil and I have pretty good results in Brazil. Then I went to do F3 in Europe, uh, in England. At the second year of Formula 3, I was teammate with uh, Rubinho, uh, Rubens. And it was crazy because I could see that a uh, young uh, Rubens, my good friend, uh, he was so easy for him. I mean, it was so easy for him to, to drive that car. And for me, it was, I mean, I was having good results in Brazil, but then to... In, 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 in the British Formula 3, I mean, the level was completely different and it was difficult. That stage, I realized that uh, 
there was many more people much more talented than myself and uh, and Rubens was much more talented than myself uh, I I can see that but uh I was pretty persistent <laughs> and that's why probably I drove 5 years of formula 1 Rubens did win the British Formula 3 championship yeah. that year we're talking yeah. 1991 yeah. aren't we but Pedro it does raise the question how how good do you think you were I was a good driver but I I don't think I was the the most talented driver. I think it was pretty persistent and when I was getting to that flow that I the car and myself at the same thing, kind of a meditate state, outer state of mind, I could be very fast. How many times in your career did that happen? Well, many times. He actually come and go and that was something that I was mentioned that uh, the work with the mind that was very important. When I was really on the flow, I could drive very fast. But then I come back and try to rationalize and try to rationalize how to drive that way. And that's not r rational. Uh, that's really something that you feel. And for other drivers, like for Rubinho, I mean, he couldn't come on that state so easy. And for me, it was not so easy to get in that state. That was a problem. So... End of 2000, you hang up your helmet. In fact, just quick question about your helmet. I can't believe I never asked this back in the day, really. But you know your helmet color scheme, and it had the, the arrow pointing forwards over the over the top. Very similar to Carlos Pache, yeah. or am I? Uh, am I get? Am I? Yeah. Am I wrong there? Yeah, that was inspiration, really. Yeah, it was was a driver that uh, actually my father likes it and. Uh, this friend of mine, uh, CD, that paints all the Brazilian helmets uh, and paint, did that color scheme. So the driving comes to an end and then you do get involved with Prost. You buy a, a minority share in Prost Grand Prix. Yeah. What was the motivation for that? So there was opportunity, uh, business opportunity. And then my father also uh, thought it was a good business opportunity that uh, turned up that it was not so good. <laughs> the team was in a big difficulties and challenging so it didn't really turn up very well but as it happened you pulled out of the team a year later sort of november-ish 2001 and that was it pedro gone gone from formula one yeah were you, were you quite i mean I, i'm sensing you were quite pleased to see the back of formula one at that time is that fair or not yeah i think that that was really it for me as I mentioned before, I really enjoyed the the driving the cars and really and race and uh, all the excitement of driving it. But uh, watching it and uh, go to races didn't really make much sense for me to, to keep following it. So I quit <laughs> on Formula One. <laughs> <laughs> So look, what are you doing now, Pedro? I'm speaking to you. Um, you're, you're on the fazenda, on the farm. What is it? It's a couple of hours from Sao Paulo. Yeah, it's a couple of hours from Sao Paulo. Yeah. After finished racing, I got in really into sustainability and uh, project sustainability and energy and uh, all stuff. And my family has this farm here since 1970s. And I started to run it in 2008 and decided to do a big project on uh, 
organic agriculture at that stage and that turned to regenerative organic uh, agriculture right now. We are the biggest uh, egg producer of Latin America right now and uh, we're the biggest uh, organic grain producer in Brazil. So it's a pretty successful project of regenerative organic agriculture. And I got in love with that because it's something that uh, you produce food, regenerating our planet. And really that that is uh, became a passion for me. Uh, even bigger than Formula One, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so how big is the farm? I'm sensing pretty big. If you're the numbers you've just given of being, you know, the biggest egg producer, the biggest grain producer. Yeah, yeah we run two farms uh, right now. In uh, this farm, there's 2,300 hectares. Uh, the other farm that we have has 1,000 hectares. But we growing. Uh, we actually growing to to other farms and uh, to the center of Brazil to operate other farms too. So it's a big business. This is uh, really a big business opportunity. I'm doing this since 2008. The organic market just grow uh, all the time and the demand is really much bigger than the, the actual the produ production. So export grains and um, lemon juice, uh, some of our products we export. But uh, eggs, we mainly sell in Brazil. Now, you're the biggest organic egg producer in Latin America. That's what you just said, yeah. wasn't it? How many eggs <laughs> How many eggs do you produce a day? 160,000, I think. 160,000 eggs a day. Yeah. Yeah. How many chickens is that? No, around 200, because we have all the stages. It's chicken from... Uh, one day chicken to to like two years chicken so tell me more about sustainability as well and you know certainly in the international press i think with the rainforests in brazil there's there's some criticism isn't there about cutting down the rainforests uh, what's your view on that that's a big problem i mean uh, deforestation is a big problem but uh 98 of the deforestation in brazil is criminal and brazil is so vast that it's a lot of criminality on a criminal wood uh, market. And so hopefully we're going to have it solved one day, but uh, it's not so easy because it's so vast. Amazon's so big territory, but deforestation is a big problem. It's actually not a, only a problem of Brazil, it's actually a problem for the planet because Amazon forest is really the lungs of the planet. So. If we keep in the forest in the way we're doing, I mean, uh, that uh, the plant are going to have big problems. But uh, what we do, uh, we have a very good business model of uh, regeneration to really to regenerate. Uh, we actually sequester a lot of CO2 with all, all the production systems that, that we have. Uh, mainly of our productions is on agroforest systems. It's systems that actually produce food in uh, mimicking nature, uh, mimicking a forest that actually sequester 45 tons of CO2 per hectare. That's a lot. And this is what really what, what I believe uh, that uh, the potential of uh, humans together with nature is enormous. And like uh, humans together with a machine, you can uh, drive a Formula One car around Monaco, for example. But uh, humans together with nature, I mean, can do everything. 
and has this replaced uh, we were talking earlier about you know the adrenaline of race driving now you sound so passionate about farming yeah. and regeneration this is all consuming a bit like formula one i'm guessing yeah i'm dedicating my life for to, to this project right now, um, it really became my my purpose in life. I get really with close contact with nature and start to understand really how nature works and really the beauty of uh, the native and uh, nature and this planet. And I became really passionate on really on to protect and uh, really actually regenerate our planet. And I think I'm a very positive guy. And I'm very optimistic that we can do that. We can really regenerate our planet. We still destroy it a lot, but we already have uh, everything in place to really to regenerate and uh, to to produce food, regenerating our planet, to produce energy, uh, regenerating our planet. Can you apply what you're doing at the Fazenda in Brazil to other countries around the world? Yes, this is in the plan. <laughs> But uh, we still uh, growing here in Brazil. There's some other people doing that uh, around the world. But uh, agriculture in Brazil is 280 million hectares. It's enormous. It's huge. We are really concentrated in, in to expand as much as we can because the kind of agriculture that we do, we actually regenerate our plant. So we produce food, healthy food, because it's organic food. And our goal is to make it more accessible to everybody. It's a fantastic project. What is it about farming and Formula One? Because Bernie Eccleston has a, a farm in, in Brazil. Have you, have you compared notes with Bernie or not? No, not yet. But uh, maybe. <laughs> just, just out of interest, was Bernie a help to you when you were in Formula One? Yeah. Did he help put the deals together? Yeah, when I was in Formula One, I had a good good relationship with Bernie. But uh, he 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 was a guy that uh, really don't help much the, the the drivers. He really help on the relationships, and but he doesn't push on the deals. I think except Pedro, except that you definitely shared links with Parmalat, didn't you? Because Bernie back in the day with Brabham had the Parmalat sponsorship, and and Parmalat, of course helped you in your career as well. You had that bonding you together, didn't you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. At the end of the day, Formula One is a big business, right? So money really can't uh, on Formula One. And have good sponsorships and have good relationships is really, it's important to, to have uh, good teams and cars. Sebastian Vettel is very interested in farming. Jody Schechter, the 1979 world champion, he's a farmer as well. Whatever it is you guys are drinking, uh, <laughs> you're all doing the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> the kind of uh, intensity that I had on Formula One cars is really the same intensity that I, that I experience when I'm really in deep connection with nature. It's actually pretty similar. And if I would write a book one day, maybe the, the title would be In the Cockpit of the Planet. <laughs> You've thought about this, yeah. haven't you? <laughs> there is a book on the way, I'm sure. No, yeah. Pedro, it's been wonderful to catch up. Look, when you think of your Formula One career as a whole, if you could do one thing differently, what would it be? I would meditate before the race. 
So it goes back to, to the meditation. It's been a it's been a theme throughout our chat. Yeah, I mean, for me, really, uh, I've been pretty open in saying that. Really, for me, my biggest challenge in racing was really to control my mind. And if I had the techniques that I have right now, uh, I think it would help me a lot to train my mind to be on that outer state of consciousness that I, I could perform yeah. the best. Did you enjoy your time? in F1. Do you look back and does it put a smile on your face? Yeah, it was actually tough because I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I really, I'm pretty competitive and I'm really don't like to lose. Now, now, nowadays with 51 years old, I already learned to lose <laughs> and learn. <laughs> but uh, when you are like 26, 27 years old, I mean, uh, it's difficult to lose. And I was really pressuring myself a lot. So was, I have very good memories and uh, I'm very happy to have this chat with you because you actually remember me many of my time on Formula One. But uh, I remember also of a tense tension and stress and really frustration. But uh, at the end of the day, I, I, think, I think it was a, a very nice time of my life was was great great experience that i had and uh, i mean very intense experience <laughs> did you enjoy living in europe yeah a lot I, I miss i miss my living in europe and um love brazil my family whole family is in here but uh, europe is so nice i used to go there for holidays too <laughs> and what about the kids are we going to see them racing Actually, actually, my Pedro is the he's the oldest, fifteen years old. I, I brought him to go karts, and he was very good. But then we back home, and his mother said, "No way, they're gonna drive." <laughs> Did you know your wife Tatiana when you were racing? Does she know no. the Pedro Denis racing driver? No, no, no. So she hasn't lived the stress no, with you, no. No, no. And she didn't allow Pedro to drive go karts. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have three kids actually. Uh, I have two from the, my first marriage from Tatiana, and then uh, uh, I have a second, a third kid, Noah, that is two and a half years old now, uh, from the second marriage, and uh, and he's two and a half now. That sounds perfect. So he can start racing at the age yeah. of four. So Toto <laughs> Wolf in about twenty years' time. Brilliant. And do you stay in touch with anyone from racing? Not anymore, really. I lost m most of the contact. But uh, Sebastian Vettel going to visit the farm tomorrow. But uh, looking to farming, not to racing. <laughs> you will talk about racing with Sebastian. I know you Definitely. will. Definitely. Yeah. Pedro, thank you so much for your time. Okay, it's been wonderful to catch up. And you do not look 51, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Lot of grey hair. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time wonderful to catch up stay well and uh, hopefully see you soon thank you Tom there are so many take home messages from that chat from a racing perspective I found Pedro's attitude towards meditation fascinating and I can only wonder what might have been had he started meditating during his career. What else could he have achieved? I also found his reasons for retirement to be startlingly honest. Not very many drivers would admit to a fear of hurting themselves. And I was taken aback by Pedro's honesty. And as for the farm, 
It's great to hear him speaking so passionately about it. After a full-on career in F1, it's always great to hear when drivers find something that gives them equal satisfaction in retirement. And Pedro's busy. 160,000 eggs a day among everything else. Many thanks for your time, Pedro. It was great to catch up and I hope to see you again soon. Please remember to send in your thoughts and stories on Pedro. Did you see him race? Have you met him? What do you think of his organic farming? Let me know and remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Fernando Alonso after last week's episode. We got a lot of feedback with many of you enjoying hearing from him. Let's start with this from Bastian Fury. I love how he's not just here to be part of racing again. He's really here to win a championship at 40. What a lion. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Bastian. And yes, Fernando is as determined as they come and as focused as ever. Let's move next to Mario, who had this to say. This is what was missing in my life, says Mario. A contemporary interview with this beauty. Well, that's brilliant, Mario, and I'm very glad that you enjoyed it. And finally, let's hear from Greg Rust. Fernando's passion for Formula One and racing just oozes through this episode, Tom. I listened on my drive to Bathurst and his one-legged cycling against you must have been crushing. How competitive is he? Hey, Rusty, it's great to hear from you. And yes, that 100-kilometer cycle race against Fernando was a low point for me. But it was very Fernando to unclip his foot and pedal with one leg in order to break me. And have fun at Bathurst, my friend. Now, as ever, we got lots more messages. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. We love hearing what you have to say. And please remember to send in your thoughts and stories on Pedro Diniz. That's all for now. I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. In fact, it's someone who's about to call time on his record-breaking F1 career. I think you know who I mean. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.